Hey everybody, before we start this episode, I just wanted to make a quick correction of a goof that I made on last week's episode on the Aztec, Inca, and Maya. At a couple points in the episode, I refer to the Inca as Mesoamerican. That is not the case. The Inca territory is only in South America. On to this week's episode about the Raramori. There's a little bit of sound interference in the recording. Uh, We suspect that Amber's mic is haunted. Still, we hope you enjoy. On with the show. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And today we are talking about, uh, well, this is going to be a long-running episode. Oh, woof. No, it's just an episode about long-running, actually. Uh, We are talking about, we're continuing our uh, Latinx History Month theme, and we are talking about the Raramuri, or the Tarahumara, which uh, they are a group of indigenous Americans who live in the mountainous regions of what is now Mexico. And uh, they call themselves Raramuri. And when the Spanish arrived in the 16th century, they used the name Tarahumara uh, to describe this group. And the Spanish name is what caught on. Funny how that works. Yeah. Uh, Because they, yeah, they're like, oh, so who are you guys? And they're like, we're the Raramuri. And they're like, "Mm, that's hard. You're going to be the Tarahumara. And they're like, okay but we're Uh, not yeah like that's that's not us um so they originally the raramuri uh, inhabited much of what is now the state of chihuahua Um, and when the spanish showed up they retreated to the high sierras and the canyons such as copper canyon uh, which is in the sierra madre occidental so the spanish arrived in the in the early 16th century uh, and when the Raramuri moved to get away from them, understandably, <laughs> the Sierras, which they now inhabit, are often called the Sierra Tarahumara because of their presence. So they're like, could we not with that name? Um, <laughs> but yet they still do. Um, so in 1631, the Spanish, who had been kicking around there for a, a little bit, um, they found silver. Unfortunately for the the Raramuri, they found silver in Raramuri country. Um, So within a short time, the Spanish had established immense mining operations and they needed tons of laborers. Oh, let me guess. They they brought in Spanish laborers and left the Raramuri alone. They... um, In fact, they did not. They did not bring them in and then, like, work with their um, union leaders to to establish, like, a living wage and child care. They did not do that. Um, They just enslaved everybody. Uh, So they enslaved thousands from indigenous groups, including the the Router Mori. And in some cases, they raided uh, their villages and took away their children. And so they just used their children to to do the mining for them. Um, Which, um, to say the least, did not set up a good relationship between the Router Mori and the Spanish invaders why Um, yeah so like when they weren't using them as a one could say cheap source of labor uh, they were busy trying to convert them to catholicism 
Um, and so they tried to, like, they were able to, to some degree, resist the the conversion process by just by virtue of being as rural as they are. Um, so they were they were harder to get to. So they were harder to oppress. Now, in 1767, the king of Spain decided to kick out all the priests. So he expelled all the priests, so all the Jesuits left. And for the most part, the Rattermori were left alone after that, just because they were hard to get to at that point. Mm -hmm. So Spanish military power diminished. So that, that sort of ebbed. But raids from Apache groups from the north, those raids intensified. So it just sort of... Nobody wanted to to deal with that area. Nobody wanted to come in or go out. Um, so for the most part, the Rauramori were left alone uh, until after the Mex- Mexican Revolution of Independence in 1810. And so then there was a new state that existed um, and took it upon itself to like try to deal with these people that were just trying to live their lives. And in 1825, the government of Mexico uh, passed the law of colonization, which is pretty on the nose. Um, mm-hmm. They called for the distribution of cultivated land around depopulated towns um, to native people without charge. So they were just going to divvy it up and and give it to indigenous groups. Uh, but very few of the the Tarahumara Rotomori population wanted to take advantage of it um, because they really didn't want to go back to these villages that had the missions in them because they already left them once. They already went through that once. They didn't really, they didn't really want to leave where they were to a completely different place that they have like deep cultural trauma regarding. Yeah. Um, so that law also said that anything that indigenous folks didn't claim would get sold and that all uncultivated land should be colonized. Lots and lots of people who were not indigenous moved into the traditional Tarahumara areas because traditionally they were not in cultivated arable land. They didn't want to go to the places that they were offered to go to because those places were terrible. Um, They couldn't go back to the places that they would rather be because other people moved in. And so instead they just moved increasingly deeper into the mountainous regions that they now live in, even up until today. There were estimates in 2006 that the population of the Raramuri is somewhere between 50,000 and 70,000 people, um, most of whom um, still practice a traditional lifestyle and they inhabit natural shelters such as cave or cliff overhangs, but they also have um, homes that take the form of kind of cabins out of wood and stone. They grow staple crops like corn and beans, but many of the Rautamori still practice transhumans, raising <laughs> cattle, sheep, and goats, which every time I read it, I think it's like a like a like a woo thing. Like like astral projection or something. Yeah. Like I'm just like, oh that's nope, that seems like apropos of nothing. But no. no they, it's just nomadic yeah. herding. Yeah. So they like almost all of them have at least a semi nomadic lifestyle. Um, and as you may remember from last week, or 10 minutes ago for us, 10 minutes ago, if you're us, um, they also speak a Uto Aztecan language. So their language is, uh, Choguita Rawamuri, and it has the second largest population of speakers after Nahuatl. Cool. And, um, I think the first comprehensive study of it, like academic study is a 
UC Berkeley dissertation that was written in, I think, 2006, which is really awesome. And I think that the author has some heritage connection. Oh, that's just, very cool. Just just get guessing off of the acknowledgement section. So they're, they're famous for two things. So I'm going to go with the, the first thing I'm going to tell you is the thing that they are less famous for. And then the yeah, other sure, thing build is it up. the big thing. Yep. So the first thing is a... Um, an alcoholic beverage, like the, it's it's described as astringent and a Ooh. homemade corn beer. It's called Tesquino, and it is a huge part of their Holy Week celebrations. And so corn kernels are soaked, ground up, boiled, and spiked with a local grass to help the mixture ferment. The ethnographic studies that have been done historically on the uh, Ravamori largely center around like oh and like here's their their holy their holy beer that they that they drink and so it's like a lot of stuff around the the cult the customs around this now mm-hmm. um also it's a big tourist draw so the beer just is? yeah and and like samana santa the the holy week easter week um so just like how in borneo there's a festival, a traditional festival in Borneo where everybody goes back to the longhouses and it, they have like a rager. That It's a huge tourist draw. I, I I was coincidentally there for it. Like I didn't participate you in You didn't any go to it. Borneo to get turned? No. Yeah, exactly. But that's something that people do. And so people go and they watch and for some of them, it's a participatory experience. I have my own views about the appropriateness of that, where it's just people who are trying to like live their lives, yeah. um, also live their lives like during their Holy Week. And but it's a, it, but it's a very interesting um, intersection of pre-Catholic ideas and traditions being folded into contemporary like faith practice. Now, the other thing that they are famous for is being able to run very long distances in sandals to the degree that they are the inspiration for entire movements in the athletic shoe world Mm -hmm. but most of the coverage that they have gotten has been around their ability to run real far and real fast Um, and there is an article that ran in the international journal of the history of sport uh, (laughs) which is great it's it's no meat science but it's pretty great Okay, we'll take um, and, it. and this was in <laughs> this was in 2006, where the author did a did a review of of coverage of the Raramori in popular U.S. magazines. So a lot of magazines like for runners and like Runners uh, are, World. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't want to. And like, some other ones, right? Yeah. So um, and then also just like lifestyle, healthy lifestyle wellness magazines. Um, and the author posited that there are four interlocking themes that constitute the Tarahumaras as a quote white man's Indian end quote. Oh boy. Yeah. And so like in in looking at the coverage of them, that it's they're described as um, primitive hunters. This idea that they eat a simple and healthy diet, that they compete they complete superhuman feats of endurance, and they lack the sense of time time and or work discipline that would make them successful athletes and Western style endurance events. Well, that's so, infantilizing and reductive. Yeah, and it also sort of um, makes you think of when we talked about the paleo diet, 
Um, yeah. And like, and I mean, it's less offensive with the paleo diet because we're pushing all of that onto people that like aren't around to be like, well, that's rude because they all died like thousands of years ago. This article talks about how, you know, uh, you America, U.S. runners are, are suffering from over civilization. And if we could just like be simple and get back to back to the earth, we can be like the nah. the the well the Tarahumaras definitely the the Tarahumara Indians here is what they would be called um yeah. but but wait it turns out they can be successful in western style athletic events color me shocked yep um and so i'm going to going to tell you about this tell you about this thing before you get into the science of how feet work mm-hmm. these ultra marathons these super super long races i how long is an ultra marathon is it 50 miles? It is any, it's any distance longer than 50 kilometers. Okay, 50 kilometers. Okay, great. So um, a a young woman named, well, she's, I think, 23, um, named Lorena Ramirez placed third in the senior category. Also, the senior category is 18 to 39. So I mean, senior for ultra marathoners. Yeah. Woof. Sure. i am past my prime right yeah so um so she placed third in the senior category and fifth in women's in the tenerife blue trail which is an ultra marathon deemed to be the highest race in spain uh so a section of so it's a a mountain ultra marathon uh so not only are you running really far yeah but you're running running like up and down the mountain yeah so Uh, yeah, so a section of that mountain reaches uh, 3,555 meters. Um, that's more than 11,600 feet. So um, many feet. I looked up a list of mountains by elevation on Wikipedia to like give you some like, comparisons. Um, yeah. They're just mountains. I don't kn- Apparently, I don't know any mountains. Uh, but I'll include that just so you can scroll through and be like, oh, so if you know about mountains, you can be amazed. Or if you don't, just be amazed at the fact that she's running at an elevation of 11,600 feet. Um, and so she placed fifth in the women's category. Uh, now, I don't know how many of these were women, but there were more than 2,400 racers from 38 countries. Big population. She she ran real fast, real far, real well. Um, and mm-hmm. according to the Spanish network uh, Vernet, Ramirez is the first Raramuri woman to complete to compete in a European ultramarathon. She was invited by the Tenerife Blue Trail uh, after they saw that she won a 50-kilometer race in Puebla. Um, and so she and her sister and her brother all ran. Um, her brother took 22nd place in the general race, and her sister placed 15th in the women's race. Um, so yeah. And so this was earlier this year. And so since then, um, she reached out to the, the new Mexican president AMLO, Mm -hmm. which like every time I see it, I'm just like, is that an organization? Like every time. And I know, and I know I, I, I followed the, ugh, yeah. So, so she reached out to the, the new Mexican president to lobby for support for her running career as well as support for her community because right now she finances herself um, and her household through selling embroidered dresses, which is common uh, for, this, for this community. So she does that and trains for ultramarathons? <laughs> yeah, basically, which is incredible. Uh, and so she... It really is. 
And and so she's not the only one in her community or even her family, her immediate family who who does this. And so she was saying, like, you know, it would be really great to get some kind of support because it's not so much that yeah. these folks lack the discipline to to participate in these European and organized US, races, like yeah. organized races. It's just that the cost to participate in them is prohibitive for a member of like a historically disenfranchised community in rural Mexico. Yeah. Yeah, but no. hmm. how did she do it? I mean, like, how does anybody run at all? But that's more of a philosophical question for me. But how do the how do these folks run so fast, so far, and not in four hundred dollar running shoes? How do they do it? Well, here's the thing: you don't really need. I mean, I I hesitate to say this just in case running shoe companies want to sponsor a podcast about archaeology I and mean, anthropology. I've been an outspoken critic of running. I, I was going to say that it's a shoe-in. <laughs> <laughs> tell me. Tell me. Uh, let me soothe you with science. Um, so unsurprisingly, excelling at running has a lot to do with the feet. Something that has always fascinated people about the Raramuri is how they can run so well in the rough terrain of, of Chihuahua, wearing only huaraches, which are these flat, rawhide-soled sandals. They're really not much of a shoe. Turns out it's because their feet are real strong. So um, there is a Harvard professor, uh, evolutionary biologist, and running form expert, Daniel Lieberman, and he uh, wrote a paper called Strike Type Variation Among Tarahumara Indians in Minimal Sandals Versus Conventional Running Shoes. Do you think he's and like so, a real jerk at the gym? Like comes I, up to people on treadmills and be like, um, your form is poor. Is I, he that kind of running form expert? I know nothing about his personal or gym life. <laughs> I just know that he, I, he, I think he um, has contributed a lot to sort of athlete consulting. Interesting. So, yeah. Um, so, I mean, he's done a lot of these studies on the efficiency of running and what, what makes a good, efficient runner. Oh. So, yeah. Um, and so this was specifically, why are the Tarahumara so efficient at running in these really not shoes? If, right. you know, why why is that better than, you know, your Nikes or your, your Reeboks or whatever? So according to Lieberman's study... Um, the Tarahumara who wear the huaraches have higher and stiffer arches of their feet than those who wear modern supportive shoes. And so um, this is to do with the fact that a lot of times running shoes are sort of cushioned and padded in different ways that protect your feet, but it also prevents your feet from building up those muscles. And the function of um, the arch of your foot is to act like a spring. So the whole mechanism of running is... Um, striking the ground and springing back up away from it in a way that is as efficient as possible. And the stiffer uh, midsole and arch support muscles likely decrease how much work the rest of the foot muscles have to do. So in other okay. words, years and years of running have made the Tarahumara's feet muscles and arches that much stronger. So like, duh. <laughs> You're like without without the support of cushy running shoes, you are forcing your feet to become stronger, and that yeah. makes you a better runner. Like it seems that makes sense. So he tested this theory, Lieberman did, using high speed video to analyze twenty three people. So thirteen were dressed in traditional horaches, and ten were wearing conventional cushioned running shoes that 
It's like you just find them in any sporting goods store. I like this sentence. The runners took it easy at a seven and a half minute per mile pace. Ha ha. I run at like an 11 minute mile. Yeah. <laughs> I, f- I fast walk a good 12 minute, Michael. My- Michael? Mile. <laughs> Who's Michael? I don't know. I can't even say it. The point of this high-speed video analysis was to have these athletes' foot strikes, stride lengths, arch structure, hip, knee, and ankle movements observed. So in super slow motion, you can see how all the parts of the runner's stride kind of line up together and how they work. So here are the results. There were actually, there's a lot of variation in the foot strike patterns. Um, This is, foot strike refers to where your foot lands, what part of your foot hits the ground first when you are striding as you're running. And so 40% of the Horace participants uh, used their midfoot and 30 their forefoot. So 70% are landing on the front part of their foot, 30% on the rear of their foot. When in the conventional sneakers, 75% of athletes struck with their rear foot. And there were significant differences in stride length and arch stiffness. So, so the, basically, the folks that were running mm-hmm. were just runners that he found. Tarahumara runners. They were Tarahumara runners. Okay. It wasn't mm-hmm. just like randos. No, it was Tarahumara runners who traditionally ran uh, in Huaraches and then runners who had been running in sports shoes. Okay. Who weren't used to okay. running in Huaraches. Okay. Yeah. All right. So... Basically, uh, if you build up your foot arch muscle, you are building a more efficient spring, allowing for a more powerful running stride with not as much lost energy as long as your stride is right. So the more efficient runners struck the ground with their forefoot or their midfoot. If you are striking the ground with your heel, you are putting more impact on your knees and you are sort of stopping yourself every time you stride, right? Because your foot's kind of tilted backwards. You're not... Mm -hmm. You are countering your own forward motion a little bit whereas if you are striking the ground with your fore or midfoot you're leaning forward and and your motion is more efficient and going forward it makes sense it does so what's standing between me and being able to run any mile whatsoever is cute sandals well no it's a little, I mean, go out and buy some sandals if you want, because they are, they are nice. They're nice looking, but, um, yeah. you can't just go out and buy Horachi sandals or some of those little barefoot toesy shoes. And that means you'll be a better runner. It means making some serious adjustments in your stride and really being mindful when you're running, which at least for me can be the hardest part because mostly I'm just focusing on like, Oh, I don't like this. Yeah. I do like running. It's just, does that mean anything for walking is it no the mechanisms for walking and running are different okay it is a different uh form of using your muscles maybe this is why i have not cracked running because no one ever pointed out to me that they are different (laughs) maybe i just need something to chase me and i'll see what happens (laughs) this is my new running coach a bear (laughs) so Oh, that tickled me for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, coach. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. Um, So why do we, why, why can human run good? (laughs) Well, not, not all humans can, can run good. It turns out that there are traits uh, that make you a better runner. You can certainly train and, and have 
discipline and things like that and and become better at running but there are certain physiological traits that really uh, set you up to be um, a better runner and so do the, there's some do the rara murray hmm? have any of those or is they do what they yeah. they do okay so it's not just mm-hmm. a matter of it's just well, let me let me okay. talk about the traits that Help make me. for a more efficient runner <laughs> okay. and then and and the 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 rara murray do have have some of these okay. so some general science of human long distance running marathons and other long distance running events are primarily about endurance but elite runners have to possess excellent cardiorespiratory fitness and efficient technique. But there are lots of other factors that set elite runners apart from, this article says, sub-elite and recreational runners. Oh, I'm what? very I'm far sub, sub-elite. I'm sub-recreational. <laughs> and that includes training volume, body size, tendon function, and the length and frequency of strides. So this is an article from sciencedirect.com, and I'm going to post the link to it because it really, really goes into depth, uh, more depth than I am willing to include in a podcast that's supposed to be entertaining. So um, (laughs) it's this combination between, it's like, you know, nature and nurture, right? So it's like combination between um, ideal body size, ideal, you know, tendon strength and function, but also, you know, you have to train all the time to become an elite runner. So top distance runners have progressively conditioned their bodies over many years to tolerate an incredibly high volume of training, in some cases over 200 kilometers of running per week. It's like 10 hours of running a week. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. And clearly this this is a huge physical stress on the body, but as long as whoever, you know, as long as you're training sensibly and and managing your training load well then the accumulated physical stress leads to rather than hurting yourself it leads to the adaptation of of your heart and your lungs so that you can improve your performance so elite runners have higher maximum oxygen capacity which means a greater ability to take in oxygen and get it to the muscles And then um, also higher performing runners can maintain this oxygen capacity at faster running speed. So they don't get that awful lactic acid buildup in their muscles as easily because they are uh, more efficient through training uh, at getting oxygen to their muscles where it needs to go. Right. So that's part of it. And I think maybe uh, because the Raramuri live in a fairly mountainous environment, I wonder if sort of adaptation to maybe some thinner air um, yeah, I was kind of wondering about that of because that. you find that with um, like among people who work as Sherpas mm-hmm. uh, and like those sorts of things, like they there are they they have larger lungs. Well, well their lungs yeah, their lungs are more efficient uh, because they they have to get they're more in a lower oxygen, oxygen environment. Yeah, yeah, out of yes. It's harder mm-hmm. for them to get oxygen out of the air they breathe. Yeah, and I, I wonder if that has something to do with it as well. Yeah. There's anatomical and biomechanical factors that affect running performance in terms of distance running. So anatomy just means how your body itself is structured, but biomechanical describes when that body is in motion. So runners who are smaller in stature and muscle mass, for instance, are better adapted to distance running than other running specialists like sprinters and middle distance athletes who tend to be more muscular. So there's one example where the the Raramuri are in this profile. They tend to be kind of lean and short in stature. Just, you know, their their body type is 
good for long distance running. Faster distance runners also tend to have lower body mass index and reduced body fat than their slower counterparts. Another very in-depth article that a lot of this information came from is from theconversation.com. I will link to that as well. And it'll tell you all about ideal stride length for long distance versus sprinting running, frequency of foot strike, direction of foot strike, tendon elasticity, all that stuff. So if you want to take a deep, deep dive into the biomechanics of running, um, that'll be there for you on our social media. Um, If you are interested... Incidentally, in the story of the Tarahumara and the, uh, or the Raramori and the, uh, just boom in popularity of this barefoot running fad, question mark, fad trend, trend, or, you know, like a a movement, (laughs) um, towards, towards understanding how our feet were sort of naturally adapted for running and, and, Mm -hmm. and folding that into, um, runners, modern runners technique. I would highly, highly recommend the book Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. It's, it starts off, he's a, a recreational runner. Um, and he, you know, he runs in his sneakers, but he has persistent back pain, which, you know, I can relate. And he goes to see a running coach just to figure out why his back hurts. And it turns out he's been running all wrong. And then it goes into sort of ideal running form, what that means, and this whole world of distance runners and elite runners and how um, a lot of this new perspective on running form and how traditional running shoes uh, with these thick, cushy soles are actually really not so great for your feet and and your whole body because because of how they affect your running stride um all that comes back to um awareness of the of the raramuri and how they run and so it's a really it's a really well written book it brings you into this crazy community of these elite distance runners and um it's very well written so i highly recommend it okay. um, it's a it's a cool story yeah it's a, it's a really cool story and it um it actually i read it years ago, maybe like eight years ago. And it prompted me to, um, completely change the, the way that I run. And now I, I'm not, I'm, I'm a, again, (laughs) yeah, I too, I'm a sub recreational runner, but when I do run, um, I've changed the way I do it and it, and it feels better. It doesn't hurt my back. That's great. That's good to hear. Yeah. (laughs) Thanks. And so, um, even though this is, this is our Latinx heritage month, um, theme, I, I somehow have managed to bring in the Paleolithic to this episode because any excuse. But it's also a really interesting look at how um, running versus walking may have affected, uh, I mean, it certainly affected behavior because it is part of behavior, but it may have had something to do with um, how Homo sapiens was able to outcompete Neanderthals uh, because Homo sapiens is evolved for more efficient running. Uh, whereas Neanderthals are evolved for more efficient walking. Ah, oh, something so, else on my list. Efficient of my walking? Neanderthal traits. No. Oh just, yeah. I got I got I got the red hair, the freckles, the mental illness, the allergies. Walking. The walking. Yeah, you should uh, get an X-ray of your heel and see how you match up. So. Oh yes, I this will. Is, I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> okay. This is research published in the Journal of Human Evolution and compares the performance of the heels of modern-day distance runners to the heels of Neanderthals and ancient Homo sapiens. The results show that Neanderthal heel bones are taller than those of modern humans and Homo sapiens and more adapted to walking and than running over long distances, where those of Homo sapiens were more adapted to endurance running. 
So this is the work of Dr. David Reichlin, who is the assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Arizona in Tucson. And he and colleagues found that unlike modern humans, the Neanderthal heel was longer. So the, the bone itself was longer. It projected farther up. And it would pro would have provided less springiness during running. And uh, he speculated that the heel, its main function was probably to stabilize the ankle and helped in jumping and walking uphill. In modern humans, the heel is lower, and that means that the Achilles tendon stretches farther, and that means that it can better act like a spring and reduce consumption of energy during running, where you're bouncing rather than... So it's like running is like bouncing, and walking is more like rolling. Mm -hmm. So like if you were to plot the motion of the feet and hips, um, you would see very different shapes if you did so with someone walking versus someone running. So Dr. Reichlin and his colleagues had eight distance runners on a treadmill at 10 miles an hour, and they did that for periods of 10 minutes and then calculated the rates of the runner's oxygen consumption. Um, and then they also took MRI scans of their heels and Achilles tendons. So the results showed that the heel bones were shorter and lower in the runners whose oxygen consumption while running was most efficient. So maybe these two things are correlated and Homo sapiens... Uh, with lower heel bones tend to be better equipped to be long-distance runners. So they took these modern heel, heel measurements from living subjects and compared them with those of 13 fossil Homo sapiens dated from 30 to 100,000 years ago and with six Neanderthals from around the same period. And the researchers' calculations suggest that during running, Homo sapiens would have expended 6.9% more energy than modern distance runners but Neanderthals would have needed an average of about 11.4% more energy. So they would have had a tougher time running. And so this, um, is, this is compared to a really small data set. But maybe we don't have that many distance runners. Can't blame them. I mean, this is only one study. I know. I, no, I'm sure I, there have been other ones. I, yeah. And this <laughs> seems like something that you could, you could repeat. Indeed. So Neanderthals may have been better adapted to walking long distances, which which would probably mean different hunting strategies. Because if you think about what Homo sapiens would be using running for, the ability to run long, long distances in fairly hot environments is thought to help in uh, running prey to exhaustion. So that's one prey strategy where you just track an animal and keep running it down. You don't have to run the same speed as the animal. You just have to keep spooking it and getting it to run. And eventually it'll just be so tired that it can't run anymore and then you can go get it um so rather than doing that neanderthals probably first of all lived in colder climates where they didn't need to prompt an animal to get heat stroke um and they probably needed different skills in hunting it's uh an interesting comparison using using physiology as a proxy for behavior is that's a really neat example of doing that very cool um and then finally i wanted to just um Talk about a product. <laughs> Pretty much the uh, the opposite of the barefoot shoe. This isn't an ad. <laughs> no, this is absolutely not an ad. We also, we're not dragging this product. We're just bringing it up because it's a really interesting step in the, step, in the quest to make walking and running better. This is um, a brand called Earth Shoe. It's still an existing brand, right? I think, but I'm not sure. Because okay, this and is, I don't, I don't know if the Telso Earth Shoe. Okay, so I so don't. I know. think what exists now might be Earth Shoes. So probably so maybe not it's different. But the patent still is held. Okay. Well, in any case, um, these were. I, I know about these because my dad apparently had some in the late '60s. 
So this is a shoe that uh, was developed as a Danish shoe. Um, yeah, the the Kelso not a shoe made out of pastry, but like the, the Kelso was Danish. Okay, so and these are well, I'm just going to read to you from the copy of an ad from 1974. The shoe that works with your body. This shoe is different from any shoe you've ever worn. It's the Earth Negative Heel Shoe, the shoe designed to work in harmony with your entire body. The heel of the Earth Shoe is actually lower than the toe. This allows you to walk naturally, like when you walk barefoot in sand or soft earth and your heel sinks down lower than your toes. The entire sole of the Earth Shoe is molded in a very special way. This allows you to walk in a gentle, rolling motion and to walk easily and comfortably on the hard, jarring cement of our cities. So, okay. Here's the design premise of the shoe. Because when you walk in soft sediment, your heel, because that when you're walking, your heel is what hits the ground first, and that's where most of your weight goes. So the impression of your heel is deeper than the impression of your toes in a regular footprint if you're walking through mud. We've all seen it. Um, so the premise of this shoe is to it. kind of... We've all seen it. We've all seen footprints. Who, who hasn't seen a footprint? <laughs> I don't, you just sounded so like, who among us has not seen? <laughs> um, so the premise of this is is to correct for that by making the sole of this shoe thin at the heel and thick at the toe. So you are walking, I, I just, I got to ask my dad how it felt to walk in them. Because I feel like I would just immediately trip and fall flat on my face. Because it doesn't. To me, that doesn't make sense as a shoe design. Thick at the toe and and thin at the heel. Because the fact that the, the heel is deeper than the, the toe in the footprint, it just has to do with how your weight gets distributed. So I, anyway, it's just a really interesting concept. If anyone has a pair kicking around from the 70s, let us know how it feels to walk in them. Yeah, and I, I looked up the patent and... You can read lots of patent language about athletic shoes with reverse slope construction. Huh. Like the closest thing they look like is those um, those shoes. Oh, that, the Skechers. The, the, with yeah. The... Those shoes that they had to they had a class action lawsuit about because everybody just kept falling down. Um, that you're constantly rocking, and so it, it's sort of like standing on two stability balls, which right, and supposedly it's supposed um, to condition surprisingly all your, all your muscles. resulted in yeah, and surprisingly it resulted in a lot of um, instability and people falling down and hurting themselves, and so they yeah because they, they would stopped. try to like run after a bus in them and <laughs> yeah, and you're supposed to mostly just that. stand, I think is the idea. So yeah, maybe it's a similar concept, but I think I similarly similarly would have failed to run after a bus in them. So yep, that is our episode on people and running and running people. Yeah, and, and on and, and on the Rada Morty and on some specific runners that are more than just running. Yeah, this is a whole culture we're talking about. They're not just. You know, we, we we only see little bits of them because that's what's publicized. Yeah. But. And so um, find us on our social media and on our website and you can read more about them and see more about them. Yes. Thank you very much for listening to The Dirt and for uh, helping spread the word. The more you tell people, uh, the less we can spam you on the Internet. 
Uh, yep. It's it's for you. It's for you that we're doing this. Um, and please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can become a monthly subscriber or you can just kick us a couple bucks one time. Uh, either way, we would love it and be extremely grateful. You can do that at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast. Or if you want to contribute towards our specific goals of uh, making this podcast accessible to all through uh, transcription services and uh, attending the AAA conference in November, you can go to the dirtpod.com slash goals. When you're out there listening to us, tell your friends about us. Find us on SoundCloud. Find us on iTunes. Find us on Google Podcasts. Find us wherever you find the rest of your podcasts. Um, and while you're there, please do subscribe and rate and review us. That that means a lot to us. Yeah, so yeah. we can compete with this new Trader Joe's podcast I just found out about. Yeah, and also like help us not have Jordan Peterson as the number one education podcast. Oh, my God. I know. And his his all-meat diet that might possibly kill people. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. See our episode on the paleo diet. Yeah. Follow us on Facebook <laughs> at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, tweet at us about the Inside Trader what? Joe's podcast. Um, tweet at us about whatever you want. Yeah, Be just nice tweet at us at Dirt Podcast. You can look at us. We're at The Dirt Pod. On Instagram. Yes. Right. Well, you didn't say that. <laughs> I didn't, you did I? look at us. <laughs> no. <laughs> If you um, want to look at us with your eyes, we're on Instagram at at the dirt pod. If you want to look and at us with our, your browser, you can go to thedirtpod.com. <laughs> and if you want to look us up on Gmail, we are thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Send us an email. Yeah. Send us your thoughts. Or I guess you can chat us. <laughs> we, sure. That chat function is for some out? reason. Yeah, we can hang. A Google hang. Um, Screen share. But most of all, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.